Straddling the top of the world, one foot in Tibet and the other in Nepal, I cleared the ice from my oxygen mask, hunched a shoulder against the wind, and stared absently at the vast sweep of earth below. I understood, on some dim, detached level, that it was a spectacular sight. I had been fantasizing about this moment, and the release of emotions that would accompany it, for many months. But now that I was finally here, standing on the summit of Mount Everest, I just couldn't summon the energy to care. That is a line from the article Into Thin Air that John Krakauer wrote for Outside Magazine more than 20 years ago. It's one of many articles that are in the book, the best of Outside Magazine's first 20 years. And that is a book that I recently added to my book club. So if you're looking for a good new read, head over to my website, kyle.surf slash book club and check them out. And if you decide to buy the books through that Amazon portal, I will get a small percentage of that purchase at no cost to you. So head over to kyle.surf slash book club and check them out. This conversation is with my big brother, Toby Tierman. Toby is a filmmaker. He's done work with Vice, CNN, Now This. He's done behind-the-scenes work for Lincoln, Pitch Perfect, Killer Joe, uh, and many others. His camera has taken him around the world, um, and he's taught me a lot. Um, I've was, I was born into... A ton of privilege when it comes to filmmaking. My dad is a filmmaker, Toby's a filmmaker, and from a very young age I had access um, to gear, I had access to um, their minds, and they were big influences on me. So I, I always, whenever anyone asks me about how I got into filmmaking or how they can get into filmmaking, I always need to preface it with the fact that I really was born on third base when, when it comes to that sort of stuff. Um, and Toby knows a lot. Um, he's someone who we travel, I travel with him all over the world. And, um, he's someone who I would want to hang out with, even if he wasn't my brother, um, which is a blessing because I know that not all sibling siblings get to have that experience. Um, we talked about a lot. We talked about camera gear, filmmaking process. Um, there was a section where I was talking to, we were talking about media and I fumbled my way into talking about the concept of astroturfing, um, which I recently learned about, which is the, a fake grassroots movement. Um, the industry paid for, uh, appearance of grassroots movement and, uh, I don't know if I did the best job explaining it, but I'm going to link to the TED Talk that I was referencing on my website under Toby's episode. So let's ju uh, jump right into this. And my guests always love hearing from you. Toby's on Instagram um, and his website is lensfirefilms.com where you can check out all of the pretty pictures that he makes. So without further ado, please welcome Toby Tierman. Kyle Tierman here. I'm in Cape Town. I was the only journalist in northern Nigeria. Not an adventure until you get lost in Tijuana. You get caught inside by a giant wave, you feel really alone. I love the adventure of waking up and not knowing what will happen and that being my job. I'm standing at a desert oasis right now. A lot of tourists don't see this part of Bali. Smiles and thumbs up. Thumbs up. Welcome to the show. 
And here we are, big brother, Toby Tierman, in the house, warming up in uh, the cab over. It's colder than a witch's titty in here, man. Give it five. Mm. Well, it's better than the situation that I had going at my house. Um, I live in an old surf shack, and for the first three years, <clears throat> didn't think that our central heating system worked. Uh, so when I would, um, wake up in the morning, I could see my breath and it would stay about 50 degrees until noon every single day. And then, uh, one day Toby came over to our, our house and he said, dude, it's colder than a witch's titty in here. You should probably turn on your heater. And I said, Toby, it's broken. I know it's broken. I've lived in this house for three years. And Toby looks at our heater, takes it off, fiddles with it for about a moment and clicks a button. So... Your pilot light was off, bro. <laughs> True. True hey, story. Hey, uh, uh, a cloud of dust erupted, <laughs> and I haven't been cold in my house ever since. So I can take five minutes to warm up in here. All right. Yeah. It's also a good way to start a fire. Clean those heaters before starting them, folks. Is that where That's a good uh, way to start a fire. Yeah, because dust. The amount of dust that can build up is super flammable. Really? Mm-hmm. Dust is flammable. I didn't know that. Um, Lint, all that stuff. You know, it's not just dust. It's skin. All kinds of stuff gets skin. in Skin. All my dead skin ends up in my heater. It's true. Yeah. Um, I've never been um, good at taking photos. I don't think, and I've never been good at doing video. I've always just like stuck a camera in someone's face and tried to get them to start talking. But I found that at a certain point, there's a limit on quality when when I've approached it like that. Like it's it's very it's run and gun, and you can get cool shit. But to take it up to the next level, which you have been able to do, takes that kind of pre-production and thought that I and planning that I respect. And it's something that I'm looking to um, understand more fully in this next sure. decade of my life. Yeah, no, I mean, it's a it's an awesome process. And, you know, a lot of it, I think, initially, I would say, comes down to, to, to building a team around you that you can rely on, you know, and know that, like, when you want to start really taking the quality to a ne- the next level, it requires a certain number of hands you know because you can't do it all yourself um otherwise it just moves so slow right and there is a there's like a there's a curve there right like you can also get to such a large crew or number of people working on something that it even sl- it, it kind of starts to slow back down it's like a bell curve too know? many chefs in the kitchen or just so many so many bodies right like it's like a, a, a dp once um director of photography yeah told me he was like I was like, you know, it's great. You know, he's, you know, the DP on a large, you know, studio film. And, and I was chatting with him about like the movie that he was making. And he's basically said that it, it's like moving, it's trying to steer like a, a huge ship, right? And it's, it turns really slow. So as you make changes or, or your course corrections, you have to really see them coming and then slowly move. But, you know, maybe doing smaller documentaries and commercial projects might be more like driving around in a 25 foot kind of speedboat. You know, you might have one or two days to get like the whole project done. So you, you hit the ground running, you're working for 10, maybe 15 hours on set that day and, and you know, 
if you look back at it, it feels like it was just this whirlwind of, of, of an experience. But you were able to make quick course corrections and adjustments on the fly, you know, which makes it fun. So in, in coming back to your question earlier, like a project that I recently did that kind of worked in that fashion, um, uh, one of uh, the filmmakers that I've done a lot of work with throughout my career, Kaj Larson, who's a host and, you know, correspondent, producer, um, you know, he and I have been recently working on a series uh, for a network out of New York. Um and it was it was about game changers, right? So it's a documentary series about um, basically, you know, individuals as like a lens, so an individual experience, but someone that might be affecting like um, politics or current um, current times through like the lens of sports, right? So um, the the initial project that we worked on was on a transgendered boxer, right? So. Um, this individual was the um, Olympic contender as a female boxer, and had since kind of gone through uh, a, a gender change, and is now working to um, c- have his first professional fight as a male boxer. Right. So, um, and that kind of is a is an opportunity to explore something that's a current issue, which is gender roles, and kind of you know what a, a lot of our country but but to bring it down into this kind of microcosm that might allow us to dive deeper into the way that um people might think about it or feel and also give it a face right give it a personality that someone can you know tune into for for five to ten minutes and and see someone's journey who's you know literally gone through that struggle so you can identify more with it you know and for that shoot you know we uh it was two days of shooting and probably a four to six, probably six-person crew, you know. So um, in approaching that, we, um, you know, we used two cameras in order to do, like, dual coverage on scenes that we would kind of organically build in different areas. We kind of pre-gamed a number of those locations, like the uh, the individual's house was one of them, so there could be this kind of personal feel. We could kind of get into their, um, you know, their eating routine, talk about their daily, um, schedule, stuff like that. Because as a, uh, contender professional boxer, you are on a pretty crazy regimen. It requires a lot of commitment, you know? And, you know, I think that there's an interesting analogy there between, um, obviously the commitment there, but also the commitment to, to change your gender and go through that process. You know, it's, um, you know, it's no joke. So it's, it's the real deal and people go through that and there's, you know, a lot of questions, a lot of people that might not agree with them, but you know, this individual was, was an awesome person and they, I really enjoyed getting a chance to know them better through that process. What were they like? Uh, what, when, what was his name? <laughs> yeah. His name was Pat. And, uh, he was a good guy. Uh, awesome individual. I mean, we only spent two days together, but, um, the whole, you know, we, we dove deep into, you know, Kaj as the, as the host of that dove deep into, you know, all the different things that, that Pat does to kind of, um, try to yeah. become a fighter. So there, were, so there was the house. Are you talking about the different yeah, yeah, scenes? I, yeah. I just want to go through the scenes of sure. this, of this shoot. I think that it's, it's applicable for like, so it's a two day shoot, you have five or six people on right. run and gun, but you're still trying to bring a kind of quality that uh, can sell a show and can um, uh, be seen on the big screen potentially. Right. So, 
we shot it in at 4K, 5K, essentially two red cameras, uh, cross coverage, so that like as we moved through these scenes, an editor would have um, options to be able to you know have a single on Pat and maybe a wide on the room or coverage on Kaj. Um, we we you know started off the day um, bright and early, like 5 a.m. at Pat's apartment. Um, which is kind of the general time when he wakes up. We, you know, we shot through a sequence of him kind of, you know, getting up, lacing up his shoes, getting ready for his morning jog, which is something he does every day. Talked with him about that kind of routine and shot some sequences through there. Also did a sequence in there where he kind of made his like shake or morning, like, you know, talked about what w- what he used to kind of fuel himself up. Um, Kosh tried that. There were some great moments there. You know, so right off the bat, we were um, excited because he was a great on-camera presence. And you don't always know that going into these kinds of pieces. Like, you can pre-interview a little bit um, just so that, you know, Kosh might get on the phone or the producer might get on the phone with that individual and kind of ask him a couple questions, see how they... Um, how talkative they are, you yeah. know, because if you get someone that's, you know, really shy, that can make our job a lot more difficult. You have to really push to draw that information out of them. And it might not feel natural, but, but Pat was a natural right off the bat. And, um, you know, so that made our job easier. And we were like, within that first hour and a half, two hours that we shot at his house, we were stoked because we were like, we pretty much have gotten a spine here just in the kind of casual dialogue and that's before we had even shot a sit down master interview with him right what do you mean by spine like a spine that could be edited to create a good story right and that would allow someone to understand who this person is and what's important to them so so if we moved forward throughout the day you know we started at his apartment and then we moved to you know we shot at a gym like a local boxing gym that he trains at um we we played around with that did some you know some in the ring stuff some glove work i mean i think in any of these kinds of things especially like a physical topic getting to see this person in action is something that's going to be great um it gives you a lot of you know visual coverage that you can use throughout the piece um we did a running sequence with pat through like some of the streets in Venice. So we kind of used some, like a stabilized gimbal out of the back of a car to get some cool stuff there. Um, We did a sequence with him running stairs in a park and also kind of, you know, did a little bit of beauty B-roll there. Stuff like, um, you know, just any of the different tricks that you would use. Sure, but so you're driving in a car alongside Pat and he's, he's running behind you to get that running shot? We did that, yeah. We okay. did, and we shot that from multiple angles. So we did some stuff like profile on him. We did some stuff where we led him and we were shooting back at him. So he was like running right right off the back of a truck and we shot some stuff that way. I mean, that's always a great like kind of overcranked, which means like slow motion um, shot that could play into the edit at any point to kind of like allow you to see the commitment that he has to do what he what he does but also like it would work to cover a portion of the interview that we were planning to do later on so you know and then on the um i'm not you know this was a couple months ago so the exact order might not be um perfect but you know at some point we shot an interview with pat like which was like a master interview um just going through his entire journey you know, so say we spent an hour and a half doing that. We interviewed um, one of his coaches. We interviewed the owner of the boxing gym. Um, we interviewed one of his teammates, like another individual that trains with Pat. So then you, you know, you're rounding out the um, 
the story that is his life and the people that he's connect, that are connected to him and kind of know him. Um, and that'll give you kind of what might end up be, being the backbone for the piece as far as the narrative content. And then, like I said, we, we shot a number of things relating to boxing in different uh, situations. Like you always want to kind of uh, mix it up and keep some variety, right? So we did some outside stuff like in a, in a park. We did some stuff um, through the streets running. We did some stuff in a gym. And then we did like a full stylized sequence, which was fun. Um, in another gym, so it's a different location, but still a gym where we kind of, you know, smoked up the room and did a lot of like cool backlit stuff, slow motion, use some kind of newer LED panels that could kind of do paparazzi effects and other cool stuff. Um, and that, that I really enjoyed. That's super cool. So let's say that, uh, a, a young filmmaker gets the opportunity of a lifetime to work on game changers and they had a good uh, impression on someone who gave them some money, and they said, all right, like right, we'll hire you to be a shooter on this. Really, they kind of know what they're doing, but have don't have all the experience, and you know they haven't um, gone through the grinder as many times as you have. What advice would you have given to them if they were on this shoot? Okay, so just to rewind real quick, I don't know if I would necessarily like phrase it as opportunity of a lifetime to do like anything in the film world because ultimately filmmaking is, you know, always hard work and it, you're going to get there over time. So I think that like approaching it as opportunity of a lifetime already is just putting too much pressure on that individual, right? So what I would say is relax, it's going to be fine and approach that situation, you know, with as much like honesty as you can right towards you know there'll be the way it works is someone's going to bring you into that scene right and it's either a individual that you reached out to or um you know basically came in contact with through life in one respect or another right maybe you saw their work somewhere and you reached out to them and said hey i really enjoyed what you did on this i'd love to have the opportunity to um to be work on a project with you and ultimately, or they found you via your reel or your agent or your production company or all these things. And those are all different um, scales, right? For how, but, but if what we're talking about is someone that's basically trying to get into working on these types of projects. And the way that I would recommend for any of one of those people to try to do that is to find people that are doing it, you know, reach out to them and, you know, offer to be involved at a low cost right make it worth that person's while to involve you right and um, if you don't you're not necessarily expected to know everything if you approach it that way right because um, you know the thing is is you you don't want to get in over your head in one of these situations so you're better off kind of like just showing your hand and saying like look I'm super enthusiastic I've got great follow-through I'll come out for free on this one and you tell me when I'm actually valuable enough to to deserve to be paid you know i think some people come in these situations and they're like i want to be a filmmaker and i want to be making you know three hundred thousand dollars a year because like that's what some other great filmmakers making and you know he's driving lambos and <laughs> like my friend jed um but anyway the uh <laughs> But yeah, no, I think that's, I think it's good advice just to get working, like, like seek out a mentor that you can learn from and try and get as many tools in that tool belt as quickly as possible. I mean, I think that applies to life across the board, but I think that the interesting thing about filmmaking is that it 
you know, I don't want to call it an old boys network because I don't think that's really accurate. But what it is is it's a, it's a very like there isn't like a a LinkedIn for filmmaking that really you know functions where people really trust it. People hire people they know because they can trust from the experiences they've had with those people that they can rely on them, right? And that's kind of the way that it works. So. You know, and I, you know, I ha- I've seen people try to change that with the film industry by creating apps that like allow you to go online and source your production company or your your crew and da da da. And I, I've never seen it really. Um, well, you're also off. spending so much time with these people that uh, you want to hang out with someone you like. That that's totally it. Like, so you, you want to have a crew that you can trust and are nice to be around. Mm-hmm. Totally. So on this shoot with Pat. I want to get more specific into your role in it, and like the the question that I was kind of getting at there in a roundabout way is like, what mistakes do you think you would have made on this shoot ten years ago, and like, what advice would you have given yourself to not fuck up? Right. Um, I mean, I think I'd have to think about it for a second. I mean, I I think in in relation to your question, one thing that is is evident to me is that, you know, it's funny because as you go through life doing film, right, uh, 10 years ago, I was doing documentaries, you know, I was shooting stuff for CNN, like I went to the North Pole with Kaj on a nuclear submarine, it was like one of the coolest adventures that I've been on, and, you know, I obviously know a lot more about shooting documentaries and and doing film work now than I did then but we still just were gung-ho and we went and did it you know and it came out great um but it's also like then I didn't know what I didn't know and then two years later I knew more and I looked back and I was like wow I didn't know shit and then three years down the road you look back and you're like wow how how was I able to even function without knowing what I know now and so th- that's why I think it's a great adventure, right? Because it's a constant process of learning. And that's what keeps me excited about it, you know? But you have to really want to, to continue to learn. Some people, I think, in, are, are not that interested in their job being something that is constantly evolving because it requires a lot more time and energy, you know? If you get really good at, you know, operating a you know, large um, crane for on a construction site or something. Those people get paid really well, you know, like building skyscrapers from a crane. And, you know, I feel like you probably get to a point where you're as good as you're going to be after a certain period of time. And it might not be that long. It might be a year or two years. And you could continue to do that job for the next 40 years of your life. Um, I don't know that it's going to challenge you the same, but you also aren't going to have to spend extra, you know, hours on the weekends or the, you know, having conversations going out to dinner with people that are also into film talking about film and da 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 and that's part of what being a filmmaker is I think it's just kind of staying in that world and just really enjoying it yeah it's a philosophy on life Steve Jobs had the famous quote where he said stay foolish in whatever you do constantly find shit you suck at and get better at it Mm -hmm. so what aspects um, of your work are you focusing on most right now what are you trying to get better at uh, I think I'm, I'm always wanting to, you know, evolve in the realm of lighting, and I think that it's a it's a medium like cameras that um, 
have has undergone um you know has been rocked by technology recently um with with the world of led um lighting what do you well basically i mean you know the led technology that is kind of moving at that same exponential pace right as cameras as as you know cameras and and yeah exactly um that's also affected you know a whole industry within filmmaking right so you know for years um you know gaffers were using the same lights you know on set they had these lighting trucks they could probably that truck they bought all the lights for that you know massive you know semi truck and would roll those out on set there you know and it was the same lights for 25 years, right? Um, but just recently, I would say in the last five years or less, some of the LED technology has caught on to such a degree where, we're, where you're dealing with these lights that don't don't get hot, which is a huge advantage on on small sets where fire hazards are is is a big thing. You know, everyone's in this space, stuff burns down, you know, and that's scary. So you have to, you know, you need a larger soundstage if you, you know, so you can create space and you can. Really? I didn't know that. So that's a factor is the lights can get too hot and create fires. Sure. Any, I mean, anything that's, you know, HMIs or some of those tungsten lights or, you know, you touch them, you're going to burn your hands. So if anything gets too close to it, it could heat up and, you know, you can't, you can't back a light up too close to a wall or put, put a silk in front of it at too close, you know, but now with some of these panels that are out. Um, which are like LED panels and different technology from a range of different companies, they're, they don't get hot at all. So you can, you know, the options of where you can put them, what you can do with them is, you know, starting to become like unlimited. Is that because of the LED? Yeah, LEDs don't heat up in the same way. Oh, okay. Right. And, and the thing is, is that um, the other thing that's really cool is now that, you know, the, um, the CRI of these lights, right? Which like is there? I don't know what it exactly stands for, but basically it means that the how true the color is is getting better and better, right? So some of these lights that are coming out in in tube form or paneled form that are you know really high CRIs, like 98 CRI or something. So it's just like it's really quality light, but that's coming from an LED source. So, and, and you, you know, they don't get hot, they can be battery powered. They don't also, they also don't pull a lot of power. Right. So, you know, if you look at a lot of filmmaking in, 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 you know, historically, you're dealing with these huge generator systems that you have to rent in order to power the lights on set. So, you know, the cool thing about this new kind of, um, era is that even though the really quality LEDs do cost a fair amount of money and the prices are continuing to come down, um, you know, you're able to cut out a lot of that stuff, like these huge generators and and all that stuff, which can just like immediately send the budget of something that's even fairly small production, commercial or dramatic. Um, you know, can already you know send it up into the oh, we want to shoot on this for you know a, a number of days. It's going to be a hundred thousand dollars. We just need to rent all the generators and all the stuff and fuel it all and have someone to operate it and da da. And you're like, you can eliminate a lot of that stuff and just plug it into house power. That's fascinating. And so the trueness of a color is, like, give, if you can think of one, like, give me an example of, like, how you would be lighting a, like, have you have you been on a commercial recently where you had to, where you used some of these new LED lights? Yeah, Friday. On Friday? Yeah, we used all. I oh, mean, for, we, for the night, for I mean, we, the night shoot? We used a mix of stuff, but yeah, we were using some of these new um, LED tube lights that I call pixel tubes. The, pi- cool. the pixel tubes. And they're super fun. So that's, that's new. And, and like they can do all of these different, you know, color formats and 
different patterns and stuff, which can create different effects. And, you know, I mean, um, sky panel is another light that's like really powerful led source that can, uh, that's kind of new that I've been playing with a bunch, which is really fun. And, and, and those are, you know, you know, I was talking to a gaffer that on a feature that I was working on. Gaffer is a lighting guy. Yeah. Last year. So the gaffer works for the DP on a, on a job and he's essentially the one that's going to be in charge of, of placing lights and, and running that portion of the crew. Um, and he was basically saying that, you know, he hasn't worked on a job in the last, you know, two years that didn't have like six sky panels on it. And essentially they were just lighting everything with these sky panels because it's so quick to do the changes. You can go from daylight to tungsten. You can you can find a, a space in between. You can change the colors of them. What's tungsten? So that would be like, you know, tungsten is like 3200 Kelvin versus daylight that's 56 so it's like you know what you what indoor you, light yeah indoor light would be kind of what you would refer to it as and what uh situations would you use a sky panel in that's the whole point you can use it anywhere whoa <laughs> Over here. um so it's so it's the versatility of them and it's the ability to have a smaller crew in a smaller space i mean these are still work. full crews right but they're just moving faster getting more done because the lighting technology has come along to allow them to do that so it might end up being a little cheaper in the long run but like you know i don't think they're necessarily really eliminating hands on the crew hopefully not because it's good to make sure everyone keeps getting paid it'll all be ai in a few years bro don't worry about it hopefully not (laughs) (laughs) um that's fascinating man so you went from early on run and gun documentary using a camera, telling a story as effectively as possible. You then made a jump um, working on huge sets. Um, You worked on the behind the scenes of Lincoln. You worked on the behind the scenes of Pitch Perfect, Pitch Perfect 2. And you've described those situations to me like going to war, like the amount of people who are involved in these undertakings is... um, immense um is there something that you like doing more or was there like learnings from those experiences being on big sets that that kind of informed where you wanted to go next with uh with your life and your career as a filmmaker yeah i'm sure it has i mean i think that uh having those opportunities was great it all kind of started with being able to work on a on a billy friedkin film called killer joe which was starred matthew mcconaughey um, and I got that opportunity by reaching out to, a you know, someone who I'd worked for or with prior at current TV and we, um, and I just, you know, he was producing features and I wanted to see what that was like. So, um, so I, 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 I got a meeting with him where we went out to lunch and I basically just said, Patrick, I'll do anything you want me to do and you can pay me whatever you want, but I'd love to come and work on a on a movie with you and I know that I can be an asset to what you're doing you know and he said awesome you know he gave me this like classic line he's like you know when we sat down he's like so you want to be in the film business eh, kid and I was like you know some some coffee shop in LA and I was like that's epic um so you want to be in the porn business you'll do it for any amount of money you can use me however you want that wasn't the movie we were making but um you know, and, and that was awesome. And he's a, he's a awesome, 
awesome guy, still a great friend, and he's crushing it and continuing to be successful because, you know, he gives it his all and whatnot. And, um, you know, we ended that meeting and like, lo and behold, like three weeks to a month later, I got a call and he's like, I want you on a plane tomorrow to New Orleans. And uh, he's like, you know, this, this movie's kind of gone sideways. I need some extra help, you know? And, uh, and I was like, done, you know? So I just like flew to New Orleans for two and a half months or two months and we prepped this movie and I got to do, you know, a whole range of cool responsibilities, basically anything that he didn't have covered. I was like, just like, I just jumped into it. And that was just an opportunity, which, which was not what I would call, um, you know, like normal within like the union structure of filmmaking. But like, you know, there's like producers can have assistance on movies that are, are not, you know, I was non-union, you know, so I was just trying to help in any way possible. But there are also things you can't do. And you kind of learn that because those are union positions and only that specific union person can fulfill that position. Right. So anyway. And that's kind of what you were talking, you're mentioning earlier about um, like having so many people at a certain point drives it. Then it's like working on this massive ship where everyone has their role that they're relegated to. Yeah. And the reason that they do that is because they've been making movies a long time. You know, and there's a reason why there's all these different jobs. And ultimately, when you're paying an actor what you what actors make, you know, um, which can be millions of dollars to be there for that period of time. Maybe the movie's going to shoot over two months or two and a half months. Right. Um, you know, having extra hands available, even if it seems like they're standing there waiting for something to happen a lot of the time, um, you know can save, still save you a ton of money down the road because when you need a stand here now, someone's on it and they're, they know that their job depends on it and, or you need a light here now so that you can kind of continue to move forward with that scene or whatever coverage you're doing. Um, so it doesn't hold the whole thing up. Right. Exactly. Cause that's, th- those are the big no, no's. It's like when you, we need someone to stand here right now. Yeah. <laughs> Where the fuck did that guy go? No. Yeah. I think on a, on a feature, like the worst place that you can be on like a large feature set is where the whole production is waiting for you to do something because that's just like you're you know you're 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 dripping sweat and you're basically like you know we need to like pull this up da 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 you know and I definitely had one of those moments and I wouldn't say it was my fault but it was just like on that film Killer Joe I was I was helping with some of the post scenes and whatnot and they wanted to see a image that they had shot previously to try to make sure that the, that there was going to be continuity. And I was trying to pull up the image on set and like Billy Friedkin was basically like, I'm not moving forward until I can see that shot. And I was like, you know, there was no warning that he wanted it, but he, you know, and I was like going through this list of clips, um, that I had on my laptop, but none of them had been titled or logged. Right. So it's like, I was literally just blindly clicking on clip after clip and like, you know, everyone on, on the soundstage is basically standing there just looking at me. And I was just like, oh, my God, this is so intense. And luckily, like, it popped up. And I was just like, thank God. So, isn't, yeah. it, isn't it funny, too, how when you have that that flood of anxiety and all of a sudden the room gets hot, making very simple decisions like... Like, fuck, what is the password to my computer? Fuck, what is the password to my computer? Forget. Yeah, you just start seeing black. (laughs) Exactly. It's like when you sit down for, like, a large test, and then there's, like, a section, and you're just like, whoa, 
I didn't even know I was supposed to study for this. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to crawl into a cave and hide. Yeah, but it all worked out. And uh, anyway, afterward, it was just like, Phew. that's good. That's good. Well, yeah, and those, and only through experience can you prepare for that kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, I think that that one was. I guess it's just an example of, of what does happen on some sets, like for different department heads, whether it's like, you know, we need more smoke in here or like we want that like practical effect to work. So like the, you know, the effects guy is working on that and everyone's standing around waiting for him. That might be a better example um, rather than just like someone randomly saying like, we want to see a clip that we never requested before, you know, but right. it was the same feeling. So, yeah, it seems like a constant balance that you're playing in film between preparing and making sure you have all your bases covered and also staying true to authenticity and when those those wild summer lightning strikes of inspiration are there you're there to catch it and those are the ones that you can't always plan would you say that that's an accurate kind of representation well, I mean, I think that the authenticity part that you're kind of referring to might be more towards like a documentary kind of docu-commercial world, which is something that like I'm, I really enjoy. And um, I know we spoke briefly about this earlier, but like it's the idea that like, you know, something that I would say I identify with as far as part of the, the type of filmmaking that I really enjoy doing and kind of have evolved doing over the last 10 years or so is, um, you know, the fusion between documentaries and commercials and like how, you know, the ultimate kind of creme de la creme of shooting a documentary is how are you going to find those authentic, authentic moments. Right. And you're looking at like you, any way you can get deeper into who that subject is, or they can show you their true side in those moments. That's like gold for, for documentary film. And I think that there's been also this kind of like tr uh, fusion probably w due to like YouTube and the, the amount of content that people consume um, on Facebook or through, you know, Snapchat or Instagram of like how everyone's broadcasting their life in a certain way. And like a lot of people do that by like grabbing really authentic moments. So like the viewer has become so, uh, so savvy towards like what's bullshit and what's not, you know, um, that I think that, you know, in the commercial space, there's become a, this huge demand for, you know, branded docu-commercial content uh, where you're going after these authentic moments, but then ha having them have a relationship to a brand. Yeah, largely it's not even about the product anymore. Right. Like it's about, it's always been about the emotion behind the product, but I think that it's a really cool opportunity for filmmakers to have budgets behind doing creative work. Totally. I mean, you look at a... Like one company that I really like, and I like the um, the media they come out with is Yeti Coolers, and that's their whole deal is badass, true stories. It's great, um, and they tell stories about people. And there's like I did a um, when I was working with Discovery, I did a, a campaign with Yeti, and the only feedback they had on the um, on the shoots was to take out the products. Right. Like we, we shot the products in the midst of this like little story we did on spearfishing and big wave surfing and then we're just like, Oh yeah, just take it out. Yeah, whatever. maybe it was too ended up too on the nose or like in your approach right. rather than just using the product and filming yourself doing whatever you were doing, maybe you kind of like tried to do a little bit more of like a feature hero shot of the product and they don't even want that there, which is you know, I guess what that is, it's an ode to how smart the viewer is these days, which is like, you know, 
And Yeti is, is obviously wise to that, which is like, if we want people to feel like they really identify with our products, so we're just going to tell stories. And, you know, if we can tell great stories of people that are, in, you know, some, you know, maybe that, that cooler is in the back of the truck and you don't even see it, but you kind of might assume that it's there. Right. Yeah. It's just a man with his dog yep. going out on a duck hunt. Getting meat. Yeah. Um, yeah, it is a it is a very special time. And as well as the amount, just the sheer volume of demand for content that's out there now. Totally. The amount of, awesome. The amount of platforms that there are. And um, I mean, it's I think that it gets a little bit murky when you get into the news side of things because the the um the strategy that a lot of media outlets have taken on is um through branded content um in one way or another and that can get a little bit messy if you if the viewer is expecting an honest um uh, and balanced story of news but i think that like that that's it, it just depends on on what it is that you're going well, for yeah and i think that news is a whole nother cup of tea right like i've i've worked in for news outlets you know over the last 10 years and, and done a fair amount of news stuff um and it's really changed the way that some of those stories are are told and unfortunately i think the 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 person they're the the group that's really responsible i mean it's hard to pinpoint it but like the, the if the viewer demanded um less less sensationalism within news then maybe news wouldn't cater to them as much as they do now so um i think that it's like you can't necessarily just blame news for only creating sensational news because unfortunately they are businesses and they need to try to continue to keep those numbers up and now that all these metrics are tracked um it's kind of come to light that the way that they can keep those numbers as elevated as possible is create stuff that are, is clickbait, right? And and unfortunately, uh, you know, on average, human beings want to click on you know murders and you know drug drug busts and and stories about that more than they want to uh, click on some of the stuff that's a little bit headier or or more heartfelt, you know. So yeah, but hasn't that always been the case since? advertising got into news i mean because there was a certain point when there was an hour of news every right. every night and it was um it there was no real um industry behind it right um and, and that, then that I, was when the fcc initially gave that you know the 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 channels over to those those networks was that you could you know there, there was their mandate was to create an hour to inform the public um, every night, and that was nightly news. You know, and they do a great job in the newsroom of kind of explaining that the show, the show, the newsroom, and the pilot episode. They do, I thought, a great job of talking about that, and that's kind of what that whole first season is about. Um, so, I mean, is it is about the switch over into well, it's advertising. Yeah, well, it's essentially yeah, it talks about how news media has essentially been co opted by um, you know advertising dollars and. Um, you know, and now we have like a whole nother world, you know, with our current situation of, you know, what's, what's, what can be discredited by being considered fake news, which is a whole nother story that I don't think we need to get into, but it's, um, it is just really interesting how, you know, how that whole world is, is playing out. And I think that it'll be like a shakedown at some point. I mean, it's but, kind of a shakedown right now. Well, well, I think what's really interesting is that, you know, you're also starting to look at 
companies like Facebook that are, you know, starting to to actually feel like, wow, we've been responsible for some of the some of this, you know, what's gone on as far as informing the population with false information. And I guess Zuckerberg alone just hired 300 fact checkers who will basically be going through Facebook content. I mean, that's like a small company. 300 people working around the clock trying to basically decide whether the content that's coming up or that people are posting on Facebook is accurate um, or is, you know, false and misleading and basically jumping on that stuff and stopping it before the ripple effect is, is you know, you know, you could say just making our, our um, country stupider by circulating things that aren't real, you know, because, you know, there was a lot of that stuff that went on during the last elections and i think that like you know zuckerberg feels like he needs to do something it's cool yeah i definitely think that they have a certain amount of responsibility in that and um i, I saw a really good ted talk um just yesterday with this woman named cheryl atkinson who works for cbs and the ted talk is um called astroturfing and it's all about industry's effort to create fake grassroots movements so the example that she gives is like, okay, let's say that you are looking at a um, an antidepressant um, and you research the antidepressant on this one page um, and it's all positive comments about it. Then let's say that you go to a Wikipedia page and okay, it's positive comments there. Then you go to another page, like there's a few negative comments that this antidepressant can um, you know, create uh, suicidal, psychotic thoughts or something like that. Um, but then those people are all called quacks and conspiracy theorists, blah, blah, blah. So she breaks it down into this uh, investigative story that she did on a number of these um, instances where industry-paid people would, would basically map out your research around the, um, around the, the product and like create this false narrative for you through multiple websites. I'll um I'll link to it on my on my website. It's called Astroturfing by by Cheryl Atkinson, but it was really frightening to think that even if I'm going to multiple sources to try and see what the truth is, it can be uh, a murky world. Right. And actually that brings me back to like an interesting idea that Kaj and I had a while ago, which was um you know, during during the time when there was uh you know, I mean, I'll, I'll give him most of the credit for, for talking about this idea, but like it was, you know, where you could go on to YouTube and learn how to make a, a pipe bomb or like some kind of terrorist device. Right. So we were talking about, you know, why not use this type of like false information to like create a number of videos that are like how to make it. But instead, you just end up with like a Roman candle or something like. So it's like if 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 there was, you know, if you you could also use this to that that same approach to like astroturfing for good yeah right so but you just need to have the you know the mandate to do it right so but ultimately i think that that i'd prefer to not be spending time doing that kind of stuff because it just seems like we're just putting out a bunch of stuff that's not true and right and doesn't but that is a what a fascinating idea though like someone tries to create a a bomb they go, go into a mall press the button and all of a sudden it just like it's starts like little, to smoke yeah or like a little happy birthday like <laughs> pops out with some flags yeah. and like 
<laughs> Ole! Exactly. God but, damn it! <laughs> you filmmakers foiled my plan! Exactly. I mean, I think that there's some practical application there that could actually help save lives. Yeah. Yeah, well, media is definitely, it's constantly shift. It's it, Our worldview is shaped by media. And if we can, it can be used, it's just information, right? So it can be used for good or for evil. Um, and I think that a lot of the kind of work that you've focused on has been very good media. It's been like informative documentary work where people can learn enough about a subject that it helps them understand the world a little bit more. And I think that the obviously there is a place for 30 second, one minute content on YouTube, but a lot of that clip clickbait is, as you said, sensationalist, and it doesn't help people deepen their understanding of the world in any kind of meaningful way. Cool. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, that's, I, I think that it's, um, it's a, it's an incredibly powerful medium to take someone on a trip. Like, I mean, this is vice obviously didn't like start this, but they popularized it like the real authentic trip. Like you're going into the war zone or, you know, like you, you said you did a CNN documentary where you went under the ice in a nuclear submarine to talk about um, the oil exploration, right? Geopolitics uh, of geo- the Arctic, yeah, which essentially is the battle for resources at the top of the world. Is that and is that largely because of which Vice subsequently did another micro doc about with Shane Smith did the same thing like five years later. Okay, Kaj Larson was there first. He was there first. Yeah, it's great. Um, so is that? I, I want to ask you a little bit more about that. The that story. So is that because of climate change that uh, the ice caps are melting and there's more um, opportunity for exploration of oil up there? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think this is something that's been going on for a while now, but it it's probably even a large. Yeah, there's probably more demand and potential, if you want to say potential because maybe that's a bad way to phrase it. But ultimately, the idea is that, you know, with um, the polar ice caps melting, there's more, you know, there's more access to be able to get... First of all, it could be ships through the Northwest Passage, right, which is can save, uh, like, a lot on shipping lanes. Um, But there's also a lot of resources underneath that ice, whether it's um, oil, water, diamonds, minerals, all that kind of stuff. So, and, and that portion of the world is actually it's kind of unclaimed right there so there's 13 nations that claim ownership to the north pole wow i didn't know that yeah so so basically that whole story was in response to like a a little back and forth between russia and the u.s where russia planted a flag on the on the bottom of the ocean with a submarine literally they went to the bottom of the ocean and planted a flag yeah so this is you know Whatever, whatever, bro. We planted a flag on the fucking moon. They can have the bottom of the ocean. Actually, they can't because the bottom of the ocean is probably way more valuable than the moon. Well, anyway, yeah. It's just, anyway, that just kind of started a little back and forth. So both, you know, the U.S. and Russia do a exercise, you know, in the North Pole every two years. Um, Well, actually, I don't know what the, you know, what the timeline on the Russian exercises are, but the U.S. does it every two years called ISEX, where they have a number of submarines up there, and they kind of do some, you know, exercises and whatnot to see what they can do um, in that climate. Is it a show of force also that they I mean, I'm sure there's there? a little bit of posturing, but ultimately, like, they, you know, they go up there with some scientists, and they're trying to communicate with submarines, you know, under the ice, and they're, you know, testing out 
you know, the climate and working up there. And, you know, if they do need to try to, um, you know, hold that part of, of, of the globe, maybe then they're capable. Uh, yeah, you had a great Christmas card from that trip with you and our friend Kaj in uh, your tidy whities standing at the North Pole. I think I was just wearing a Santa hat. Oh, just a Santa hat. Sorry. I've, I blocked that out of my memory. And, memory. and some boots. <laughs> a Santa hat and some boots. So there isn't a real North Pole. I didn't know that. That was that was that, that, I, that was actually just something that they stuck at the ice ice X location. So I don't know if it was true zero, you know? Mm. I'm pretty sure it wasn't. But it was, you know, we were close. We were up there. Yeah. Cool shit, man. What a fascinating life you lead. It's kind of funny like that you're you're my brother, but a lot of the times like I don't press you for details about a lot of these trips that you've gone on. And it's super cool, man. It's like a, a, a what a a fascinating life that you get to lead, and so many tables that you get to sit at that you would never otherwise have the opportunity to be at. Yeah, I mean, I think that's actually well, thank you, but that's also a takeaway from why being able to do documentary film is is such an awesome opportunity, and I feel so stoked to be able to be involved in some of these things. It's because every time you go to do a new project, you're going to be able to learn about something that there's a high likelihood you would have never been able to be involved in or like the people that you're you're connecting with and and hearing from it about or whatnot you know they've spent 20 years of their life it's their entire life to like get to do that thing that they're doing right now and now it's like newsworthy enough right so then you, you get to bring in the camera crew and i just get to be on the crew you know i get to be part of that experience and like be there for that aha moment and like get to get this you know it, a lot of times it's a it's a summarized boiled down version so you know that could be something that you know some people want to dive deeper into something and really own it and master that portion you know that piece of information which i wouldn't say we get to do because a lot of times we're only working on something for a week or 10 days or two days or four days or whatever but it's like you get to you get a lot out of it and you're like wow yeah that was pretty awesome and that was an interesting person i just got to do a a piece in in indonesia with um the underwater um, freediving world champion, right? So uh, his name's Herbert Nietzsche, super interesting Austrian guy who holds 33 world records. He, you know, he's dove deeper than anyone. I think 800 and something feet, right? Assisted. So he's like on a sled, holds his breath, but on one breath, he was able to go down to 800 feet and come back up. Um, Whoa, that is insane. Yeah. And, and like he does, you know, the tech, it's so technique based, which is really, you know, interesting. But like the, the cool thing about that shoot was that, you know, he's talking about it. And basically what he does is he, he gets ready, does his whole warm up situation where he's going to, you know, he basically packs his lungs with as much oxygen as possible. He does something he calls packing where he's like sipping little pieces of air to like end up giving himself like a 40% more capacity of oxygen. But then he, you know, on this, on this 800, um, foot, uh, dive, he exhales all that air right at the beginning into basically like a glorified Coke bottle. Right. So, and the reason for doing that is because when you go that deep, um, your lungs basically turn into like chestnuts. So if you, don't get all the oxygen out of your lungs, you can't get it out and you won't be able to, 
you won't be able to clear your um your 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 ears right so as you go that deep he needs the air that's in the coke bottle to basically put into his mouth to clear his ears so he gets to the bottom Wait, explain this. That's crazy. So he gets. So he's to the not bottom. even using the air that he inhaled to go down there. He's just using like. I mean, I I don't fully understand, but I think he's just using all the oxygen in his blood, right? Because his lungs basically turn into just like. Yeah, they nothing. compress. Right. So in order to go that deep, he just is basically. The the real concern is just to be able to equalize on the way down. Yeah. And, and also going down on a sled. So this is something that he's hanging on to. Someone clicks a lever, and all of a sudden he's getting hurled to the bottom of the ocean right, on, so this, going, on this weighted vehicle. Right, going really fast. And basically when it gets all the way down to the bottom of whatever distance they decided they were going to go for, then you know there's an, a mechanism that's triggered that like a parachute that basically inflates with oxygen in it to bring him back up. What always frightens me about that kind of stuff, freedivers that go that deep, is when you get that deep and your your uh, lungs get that small, you feel like you have an infinite amount of oxygen. Because if, as your lungs compress, it makes you feel like, oh, I could be down here forever. And then all of a sudden you start swimming up. Right. Swimming up, your lungs start expanding a little bit more. Then yeah. all of a sudden you feel like, oh boy. Things are starting to get spotty. Right. Oh, boy. I haven't gone that deep, but it sounds pretty well. I'm at my grandmother's birthday party when I'm four again. This is strange. On, the, on that job, I did get to dive. I was on, I was on scuba shooting on, like, underwater um, video of Herbert, but we got to go down to this shipwreck that was, like, you know, over 100 feet down, and he was just free diving down and swimming through the ship. Like, on the third level, there was, like, holes in this shipwreck, and I was, like, wow. down there with him, and he was kind of cruising through the ship, which was... Super wild, um, and it was an awesome experience. And to to bring that full circle, like, you know, without being a filmmaker, I would have never gotten a chance to have that experience and meet Herbert and go do that with him, and have that context and that you know, basically that that was an awesome you know experience to 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 be able to be a part of. So you were down there on the ship with him off of off of what island on Indonesia? It, no, we were on we were on like the northeastern side of Bali, so sunken ship. Yep, yep, that was cool. Was that your first? That was one of your first uh, scuba, uh, not one of your first time scubaing, but one of your first time shooting on a commercial on scuba. Is that correct? No, you've done it a few times. Yeah, I mean, I've like kind of got one of those underwater systems about a year and a half ago, and have been doing a number of different underwater shoots, but um, that was probably the coolest one. Radical man, keep on keeping on. You, uh, I don't like to admit this, but you do inspire me sometimes. Ditto. All right, on man. Well, um, thanks for taking the time to sit down with me. No, it was a lot of fun. Part one of ten. That's our show, everybody. I'm gonna play you out with a song called "Gotta Get Away" by The Offspring. And this is an ode to the Tobes for teaching me how to skateboard. This is the kind of music that we would listen to when we would spend hours on our halfpipe as young lads. Once again, go over to lensfirefilms.com to check out Toby's work. He is also on Instagram. My guests always love hearing from you. So reach out. I'm sure he'd be happy to field any questions. Um... 
donate to this show um, if you value it if you have a few extra bucks um, go over to my website kyle.surf and that's how we keep this thing going um, and if you don't have money to donate seriously don't stress out about it there are a million ways to support the show that don't cost you anything while listening to this song right now and you feel inspired to give this show a rating on iTunes or wherever it is that you are listening from. It helps other people find it. So it takes you 30 seconds, um, doesn't cost you anything, and is a big help to me. Got some good episodes coming out in the weeks ahead. I did one with big wave surfer Carlos Berlay. I did one with sex educator Amy Baldwin. And I'm on my way down to LA uh, right now um, to get some more podcasts for you. So thank you so much for listening. Um, I love this community and love hearing from you. Um, and it's just, it's good fun. I enjoy doing this stuff. So get out in the water, give someone a high five, enjoy your day, and I'll see you soon. <laughs>